Welcome to Librarians Allowed, a podcast about librarian journeys. I'm your host, Laura Rooney-Ferris. Well, folks, the time has come. The librarians have assembled in Dublin for the IFLA World Library and Information Congress. Basically, this is the annual librarian equivalent of Glastonbury or Coachella. uh, And we're super excited to have you all here. Uh, Rest assured, though, Although there's a dizzying range of performers and that creates a kind of a festival vibe, the facilities are a lot more comfortable um, and the toilets certainly are. Following on from last week's talk with Cahill Macaulay, the president of the Library Association of Ireland, this episode continues the introductions to another of our amazing Irish librarians and another member of the LAI Council. Michelle Breen is head of learning and engagement at the University of Limerick's Glucksman Library. As well as being on the LAI Council, she served as chair of the Western Regional Section of the LAI. Michelle's also an experienced writer and she's published articles in Portal, Libraries and the Academy and the New Review of Academic Librarianship. Michelle's also a great example of everything that's good in the Irish library community. She's always enthusiastic, available with good advice, open and generous with her experience and her expertise. So I talked to her about her path into the library world, her current role and the building excitement on the eve of IFLA. Okay, uh, Michelle Breen, thank you so much for joining me on Librarians Allowed. Um, You've been on my list for a while now. I don't know whether I've told you this already, but but you've been you've been on the the list for a while ever since uh, I think I went to a Western Regional Section CPD event a couple of years ago, and you were talking about you had a, a good story about you know, being a child and wanted to be a, a librarian. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear more of that story, and maybe you're uh, you'll introduce yourself and and give some some backstory on on your journey to to becoming a librarian. Well, thanks, Laura. And to be honest, I've been a long term fan of the podcast as well. I looked to see how far back it it stretches, goes all the way back to 2015 with that understandable hiatus until you got back (laughs) on the road this year. So it's always very intermittent. So it does stretch back a few years. So delighted to be a guest. And uh, yeah, that story is it's a real one from when I was a kid. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, having kind of come full circle now and worked in libraries of different sorts for over 20 years, really, it's kind of striking that that thing that I loved doing when I was a kid, so reading books and writing them back out, that those skills in writing and that kind of um, summarising of information, I suppose, is something I, I still enjoy doing. Now, it's it's hard to to join that 10-year-old girl to to a library manager now and see the connection. So, look, hopefully we'll we'll drill into some of the detail. But, of- but isn't it nice sometimes to be able to... to- to to see to still see that thread all the way back to things that you were interested in and inspired by when you were a child and see that maybe underneath all of the less enjoyable stuff that we do every day that's somewhere in there there's there's still that joy 
Well, this is it. I've been to, um, you know, graduation ceremonies over the years in, in the University of Limerick. And one of our chancellors ha has made memorable speeches in, in which he would tell the graduates that, and you know, the parents and the graduates are smiling at the chancellor and the chancellor says, you find yourself a job that you enjoy and you'll never work a day in your life. And I feel, you know, I feel very fortunate, very lucky to have almost stumbled upon a career that suits me and that I absolutely enjoy and, and relish every day of. So, you know, I, I fell into librarianship, I have to say, Laura, and I, you know, listening back to the, the other <laughs> people you've interviewed, it's a it's a recurring theme, isn't it? That mm. sometimes you 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 stumble upon a thing and you just consider yourself lucky for the rest of your days. So I studied uh, my BA at the University of Limerick. And as probably a lot of the listeners know, there's a mandatory work placement when you study at UL. And they call it the mm. Cooperative Education Programme, Co-op for short. So when I studied, I was studying languages. So I did a work placement abroad. I did one in France in 1997 came back to college and my second placement had to be in the offices of an Irish speaking organization because I was studying Irish. Now, mm. there aren't a lot of them, but yeah, Dublin that must have been was, hard to find. Yeah. So Dublin was the place to, to go to find those kinds of employment um, placements. So I remember getting the train to Dublin and going for my interview in what was called the Institute Tanguilich de Aaron, ITE, the Linguistics mm. Institute which had a very, very small library in the basement. It was, you know, that stereotypical basement library supporting researchers and the students of Trinity College, master's students were allowed to use the library as well because it had a fantastic um, linguistics collection there. It was a fabulous place. Now it has mm -hmm. closed down and it was, um, I think the staff moved, uh, moved on afterwards, but it was a fantastic place to do a library placement. Now I was there to practice my Irish but because I was in the, the library service, I got to, you know, to be involved in the processing of incoming journals, updating mm -hmm. records and doing the running around that anybody who starts off in libraries does. So thoroughly enjoyed it um, went back to college and graduated. I was due to graduate in 1999. And if you cast your minds back to that time, it was a time when IT skills were the thing to have. So lots of people who had done BAs were looking for an add-on qualification so that they would be employable. Now, mm. to me, you know, getting involved in IT, ironically enough, because so much of our work in libraries is technology and IT related, for me, getting IT skills was like, God, it was going to be a real challenge. I remember borrowing books from the library in UL to try to teach myself C++ and Visual Basic. Oh, God, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The books remained unopened and I did return them. Um, so it wasn't for me, but I did think back to what I had done in my co-op placement and got in touch with the Linguistics Institute again and, you know, tried to figure out how you could start working in libraries. And it was the librarian there at the time, Isolt Nierig, that said to me, yeah, you can study this. You can train to be a librarian. And I think, you know, competition was pretty hot that year to get into the UCD programme. And it hadn't really been on my radar. But look, I took a punt on it and I applied and I had the requisite work experience at the time. So in I went and had really just a fabulous year there with um, colleagues. I still meet and interact with some some of the time through uh, the academic libraries and some even in the public libraries. So did my library qualification and again out of library school, then it's like, well, what do I do next? So I moved back to Limerick and uh, 
really wasn't sure how do you get started there was no um fabulous lis jobs ie hashtag at the time for you to jump on and see what jobs were available in the country so i remember contacting noreen in the library school to ask you know where where do you get started and she said interestingly enough we've had a description a job description in from a company in limerick i'll send it to you i can't actually remember how i got the job description from noreen was it fax or did she post it to me but I had enough of the job description anyway to put my application into a look a fabulous company here in Limerick called Analog Devices. So they're they're the lesser known of the two big chip manufacturers in Ireland. So Intel being the big one that everybody knows. Mm-hmm. But Analog was like it was one of the biggest employers and still is in the region here in the Midwest. And they're a company that invested heavily in research and development. And was you know doing all of these innovative um, processes and designs of chips for customers, and I was fortunate enough then to start as at the time I was called an information analyst. Now I really didn't know what that meant, but that what I did know is a very new title at the time. Oh look, at the time it was uh, I didn't even understand what it was. My parents explained mm. it to people by saying, "Look, she works with computers." So I, I, the, the thing that strikes me about that role and that this is a recurring theme all the way throughout my career is the fabulous mentoring and training that I got. So my boss at the time was a, a, a US based librarian who had uh, worked at Bell Labs and was now the head of um, technical and marketing information services in analog devices uh, worldwide. I was based at the Limerick site and my job at the time. So, again, they were very sort of future looking, I suppose, we had a digital library 20, 22 years ago, an exclusively digital library. So we, we were using products like IEEE Explore, which was new at the time, mm-hmm. Compendex, and I was guiding researchers, I suppose they were really, and product development teams through their searches for intellectual property, patents, and, and you know, sh- sharing with them what I knew of information seeking. So a fabulous time. I spent... Um, six happy years there it was it was great and I still have uh, good friends from there as well so a most unusual job uh, the team we had five people so we had my boss the librarian I was a librarian we had an admin assistant and we had two very very brilliant information architects who were genuinely IT people so when we needed to set up for example I suppose you'd call it now a, a type of institutional repository those information architects were invaluable to us. So I was kind of hothoused and trained there for the job that I would subsequently get at the University of Limerick in 2006. So it was a great. So whenever you were coming out of your, when you were doing your your library qualification, is that the sort of work environment that you even envisioned a librarian could end up in? Because I think looking back to the late 90s, early 2000s, there was still, even among people who were training to be librarians, very much a conception of you would go into public libraries or academic libraries, maybe medical libraries, but there was less of that crossover of us bringing kind of a set of transferable skills into different environments. Yeah, it's true. And even today, if I just when I describe this initial um, professional role that I had, people still are, you know, agog at the idea that there was mm. a library in that type of a company in Limerick. But look, they, they are an unusual, as I said, very forward thinking, research and development focused company. So I was very fortunate. I suppose you could say I was naive. Well, I definitely was naive in library school mm. because, you know, the programme had students on it who were 
mature students who were already working in public libraries or had taken time out of careers. There was a woman in my course from DCU, for example, she had taken time out. Now, I still I still didn't twig what it meant to work in those kinds of libraries. And, and 20 years later now, through the, the involvement I have with the LAI, I see how all of those different, I suppose, career paths and different types of library services all benefit from that professional training. We had visitors in the University of Limerick about two weeks ago from uh, North Carolina. So they're they're all student librarians and one of their faculty members was on the, the visit with them. So we got to have kind of a roundtable Q&A session at the end of their visit. And, you know, the types of skills that you and I learned or the things we learned at library school, they're, you know, people might say, well, what, why do you do cataloging and why do you do the things you do? Why do you teach all of those things? Well, really, it's those first principles that you can apply in you know, a health sciences library, apply them in a private setting, apply them, you know, all of the skills that we bring to you know, even the recent um, redeployment of staff to support the health research that had to go on during COVID. Knowing all of those basics and first principles is critical and crucial in any discipline, not just librarianship. So, you know, when students are learning coding, learning how to program, there will be an analog element to that too, to understand exactly what you're doing. I mean, we're old enough to remember that in UCD, you didn't get near the dialogue databases for more than about maybe 30 minutes or an hour during your course. So you had to be 100% ready to hit the ground running when you got your time on the search engine, on the database. You had to have your search strategy planned. You had to know exactly what you were doing. We teach that now to postgraduate and PhD students the value of strategizing before you go and do any searching. The, you know, the, the benefit and the value of that is, is just incredibly powerful. So um, the skills are utterly transferable. Did I know I'd go to a private sector employer for my first six years? I didn't, but absolutely delighted that I did. Yeah, it sounds like it was a great place to to get started and and build maybe an understanding of some of the things that are just a standard practice in library environments now, um, but that weren't at the time being able to work with technologists um, and being able to be very kind of future thinking. Uh, having having to stay up to date with them. So as it happened, the timing of my recruitment in 2000, about September 2000, meant that I went in with the intake on the graduate program who were all engineers. So I turned up at work and facing me was a Unix Sun Microsystems workstation, which was absolutely fine if you were on the graduate engineering program. Not yeah. so much, not so much for me. So a little bit like that old story of uh, St. Patrick carrying out the baptism and putting his staff down through the guy's foot while he was doing it unintentionally. <laughs> I sat with my my son Microsystems workstation for a few days, not knowing what to do with it really, until I had a kind of a catch up with the HR person. I said. She asked me, was everything going OK? I said, well, it is, except I can't really use the computer. Mm. She said, did you, did you not get a laptop? And I said, no, I didn't. Oh, she said, that's we'll, we'll get that sorted out. So once I got my Windows machine up and running, I was OK. I was back on the road. So you went from there, you went um, into the academic environment. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, looking back on it now again, and it's such it's such a lovely thing to be able to do, to sit down and chat to you and, and have that time to reflect on, you know, the water that went under the bridge in the 20 years. 
I suppose mm-hmm. I came to a point after about maybe four or five years as a kind of a solo librarian, the only librarian amongst hundreds of engineers. And while it was a fabulously supportive environment and I learned a huge amount, I just felt like I needed to be surrounded by more librarians. I needed to be more in the profession. So back then I wouldn't have had any involvement with the LAI. Now, the University of Limerick was so close um, and having been, you know, being an alumni from there, I would have maintained my connections with the place. And when positions were advertised for assistant librarians there in 2006, um, I applied. So at the time, mm. there were vacancies for subject librarians. So I felt like I could I could do something useful for the science and engineering faculty in UL, which is it's the biggest faculty there. And of course, it's research intensive and has a lot of you know, big intake into its student programs. And um, they were just starting a new school of architecture at that time. So I said, look, I'll, I'll have a punt at this. And I was successful at interview. So joined there as the science and engineering librarian. So look, you, you, some of the experience I had in demonstrating and teaching and supporting research was very valuable. But of course, it was a different culture. Absolutely, totally different. Had to sort of make my reputation or my name all over again. And, you know, you do that. It's when you go into an organization the size of any university, you know, you've got the supports around you, but that liaison piece requires you to get out, hit the road and start to talk to your customers, if you like, the course leaders, the faculty and the the people who are going to influence what happens with student instruction. So it took a while to settle into the role, I suppose, but I spent uh, a number of years doing it and witnessed great changes there too. So when I joined in 06, um, uh, this is interesting because it it leads up to the the, uh, unveiling or opening, I suppose, of the fabulous new library at UL in 2018. But not long after I joined, you know, we had been, we were expecting the growth in student numbers. We were expecting that our building wouldn't be able to, you know, wouldn't be able to provide the services for that growing student population. So we were, I suppose, for 10 years or maybe more looking forward to this new building and this fabulous new library service. So it was never a distraction, but it was always kind of something in the future that we looked forward to. So, you know, I was one of I suppose the proudest days and the best days I've ever had at work was the day that that library opened in 2018. So, you know, doing tours and welcoming visitors and stuff, the the fancy term, I guess, is outreach and engagement. Um, But but the the welcoming of people to see something so special and so, you know, just so future focused, I suppose you'd describe it. Um, it's just immense. And I know this week even we've had some early arrivals for the IFLA conference for the World Library and Information Congress have actually made their way to Limerick. So I guess if you and I go on holidays, if there's a library nearby, we're going to stick our heads in. Right. It's kind of a boss man's holiday. Yeah, we we probably do it. So if you've travelled from halfway around the world, as many people have, even from the southern hemisphere uh, for the events next week in Dublin, of course, you're going to take in some libraries. So you know, thrills like that make this job that I currently do. It's it's just it's so rewarding and it's it's humbling to be able to stand in that building, describe what it does and show people around. And uh, we have an, um, a group of visitors coming the final day, the Friday after IFLA as well. So I'll be involved in that. Hopefully, if uh, if we can keep COVID at bay, things should go smoothly next week. 
So it sounds like um, you were coming into UL at at a time of great change and to be able to be involved with laying the groundwork and the, the momentum building up towards the opening of that new library. And to, for the team that actually achieved that project and for any of the huge library projects that are undertaken in the country, um, be they in the academic sector or in the public libraries, when those buildings are realised, I think that the whole community can be proud of them, to be honest, because, you know, you look at the, the IFLA library map of the world and you see some really outstanding achievements by libraries. And we are a huge community. And I think that will come home for people next week. Anyone that's able to attend the conference or able to just follow it on Twitter um, or any of the social platforms, the, the scale of what we do and the contribution of the different types of libraries globally is just immense. But it, it, it takes fabulous people. And, and most of them, Laura, as you know, in a voluntary capacity in organisations like the LAI, um, to just get stuck in and make these innovations happen and put on these events and deliver huge progress for Irish libraries. Yeah, um, and I think, you know, when you talk about being involved with the huge amount of work that goes into um, developing and shaping how a, a multi-million new library service will look like that, you know, the, the, the key word is within your, in your title is, is engagement and um, what you see from these beautiful new library buildings um, that are being developed is that engagement right through. You know, it 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 shows you the full kind of spectrum of what we do from you know the one to one engagement with people in terms of their information needs right through to the engagement of how people interact with and and use these buildings once they are in place and once they're open to to their users. Um, so I know that's a big, big part of your job is that that, that continued engagement with. Uh, it with it is. And look, we, we only have our, let's say a typical undergraduate, we only have them for four years. So their academic year goes at lightning speed and, and a bit like, you know, the, the, one of the themes in your podcast, and this is true across all of the library world, I think. Librarians stumble into librarianship. So put mm -hmm. yourself in, put yourself in the shoes of an incoming 18 year old student who is leaving home for the first time, taking on a new area of study that they might not know a lot about, who may never have set foot in a library in their lives. So it's critically important. And, you know, you want those students to feel welcomed, to feel like there's a reason to come to the library, to feel like it's a community they can definitely be a part of. And um, so it's adjunct, of course, in many cases to their um, academic studies. But from the, the first day that they arrive, we have, and this is just an example, there are brilliant initiatives that go on across all of the libraries. But at the University of Limerick, over 10 years ago now, we took the decision to recruit students. So this idea of peer learning is so important in student engagement. So every year we recruit a new team of student peer advisors. So the Librarian for Student Engagement and Success at UL, Jesse Waters, manages this team now recruits them from across all of the academic disciplines. Some postgraduate students and even some PhD students will work with us. And you we can't, you couldn't give enough, you couldn't overstate the importance of their role. Um, they're positioned in a highly visible location at the entrance to the library from the week before students arrive. So they're, they, they know the types of 
issues that students encounter from day one. And they're not all library questions in the first couple of weeks. They're things about getting set up with your printing account, getting your modules registered, just that settling in piece. Now, as the semester goes on, it starts to be more information literacy stuff, more about my lecturer said to read this book or do you have any more books by this author or I'm studying this and I don't know where to find the books. So there's just you I, I really can't stress enough how important that student peer learning piece is for us, for our student retention goals and making sure that sure that our students feel welcome. Yeah, so it's a great um, it's a great leveler and link as well to between the general student population and the library staff, because I think no, you know, no matter how confident, um, particularly undergraduates, no matter how confident they are and how capable they are, they're still it's still very challenging to to come up to a desk and ask a question and you know put yourself forward as, as not knowing something or even knowing where to go. So that that the fact that you have that direct link um, between yourselves and the student population is great. I'm wondering now, like into all this over the last couple of years came the, the huge upheaval of having to adapt and react to delivering our services completely remotely. And if you talk about engagement, that was a real shift in terms of going from having this beautiful physical building to for students to come into and and interacting um, with, with people face to face to adapting to delivering services online. How did you and the team at, at UL cope with that? And what were the biggest challenges that you faced through the, the pandemic and the lockdowns? Well, I think coping, coping is an important word in it. We survived it. We, you know, yeah. we just, I mean, this thing got thrown into our laps. All of a sudden, it just, I mean, looking back on it now, we we understand how it's it's closing down a physical building, how much that impacts on people. And then having to, to continue to support students throughout it was our absolute priority. So, so two things we prioritized immediately were access to essential material for um for the curriculum. So our fact we, we reached out to our faculty in the days, the same week that the libraries were told to close. So when the, the country shut down that week back in March 2020. We immediately reached out to faculty and said, tell us what are the most important electronic books that your students need for the rest of this semester? Because we were just about halfway through that semester facing into exams at the end of April, start of May. So we had a huge response to that. And we were fortunate immediately to be able to provide some fantastic um, ebook packages, things like Academic Complete that I know other libraries got as well in the early stages. Then providing access to the more I suppose the stuff we couldn't source by ebook. So we had that click and collect eventually and that scan and deliver service that lots of places had as well. I think we were fortunate to some extent that we had the masses of data and information that we already had from students about students. So through things like, you know, the LibQual customer satisfaction survey and through our the questions and the, the query reference service that we run on LibAnswers. So one of those SpringShare platforms, we had a huge amount of information and we had already aligned the library services with that academic life cycle. So we knew in March it was assignment time. We knew in April it was get ready for study time. So we were able to put information out through our social media platforms. I remember back, oh God, I can't even, probably 12 years ago, 
when I first set up Facebook and Twitter for the library. Well, Facebook and Twitter, you know, obviously they got passed out to some extent for, you know, engagement with typical 18 to 22 year olds. So we used Snapchat to get information out to students and did that through videos and then put on one, one of the big things that, that happened for us during COVID was we had planned to put on uh, digital skills classes for students. Now, that wasn't just on our own. That was with the IT department and the Centre for Transformative Learning, because we knew from the student experience survey the previous winter that students, despite being very digitally savvy uh, on phones and tablets all the time, doing a lot of gaming, spending a lot of their, their life online, the, the academic skills and the kind of business tools that you need for success in college, they were a little bit alien to them, right? So there's I published an article with them. Um, two of my colleagues from UL in the last few months in the new review of academic librarianship about this. But it's that criticality of understanding what it is that your students need to succeed academically and what role libraries can play then in supporting that. So the, the typical traditional library workshops that we offer are great. They're fantastic. And you can add to that by giving more information about you know, digital information skills. So you're teaching students how to be really critical when it comes to evaluating information online. You can do sessions with them about presenting research visually, um, sourcing copyright free images for assignments, all those kinds of things that these are new skills for students. So we had a huge um, interest from students in those classes, which took place exclusively online that first year of COVID. So response from us was absolutely digital, um, but really looking forward now this September to getting people back on campus. The hybrid, I think, hybrid learning and hybrid teaching is probably the biggest challenge we'll face in this coming academic year. So we do plan to do some hybrid teaching again this year, and it's challenging. We've just gotten used to doing it online. We used to know how to do it in person, and now we've got to mix the two together and try and do that to a, a high standard. Yeah, and I think we're also facing completely different patterns of behaviour in libraries that we, you know, we have to accept that we have whole cohorts of students who have had most of their undergraduate experience has been delivered online. It's been a really busy time for librarians. So I think in the next maybe six months, 12 months, we do need to return to doing some user experience assessment and, and starting to talk again to our users to, you know, let things settle a little bit. I don't think any student would have welcomed us tapping them on the shoulder in the last year or two years to say, how do you think you'll study in uh, this, the autumn of 2022? But I do think it's critical for service design and the quality of our services to actually tune in now to what exactly is going on here. You know, are there things we can improve for you and what are the things that you're finding challenging? So I think the more user data you collect and the more you know about your customer, the better a service you can provide. Now, that's not to say that Michelle Breen is predicting that everything is going to settle by September or October. We're not sure that it will, but those patterns that we see of and this idea of being able to conduct your, your studies online, that's absolutely a trend we have to support as well. You know, this um, people studying short courses to gain micro-credentials, maybe get a certificate or diploma, be in and out of college in three or six months, those are trends that we're going to have to um, to deal with, too. So tailoring the level of information literacy upskilling for those students who are only with us for a very short time, 
that's going to be a challenge in addition to that hybrid learning experience, I think. Yeah, I think, as, as I said, it's just um, trying to be a bit fluid in our approach because we're going to be expected to meet a much broader spectrum. Yeah, I think that, um, that if, if our focus sometimes is on upskilling of our students, I guess that upskilling that we all had to do so rapidly at the start of COVID, that that really, I think, has served us well. I know it felt frantic and it felt like it was really experiential learning, wasn't it? Having to learn about Teams and Zoom and all of the, the platforms that we now use every day. That's, that's how you learn. I, it, it's how you learn, right? So, so making, just do time, it. making time going forward for um, continuing professional development for all of us across all the different library uh, spheres, whether that's you know dealing with data, doing that assessment work, you know, doing better communications and outreach, which involves writing, speaking, all of those soft skills, I think, in addition to all of those new technical skills we've acquired in the last couple of years, I think that'll be a critical area of staff development in the next, um, in the coming maybe two to three years. So look, we have fabulous training bodies in the country. We have Connell looking after it on the research library side. And of course the fabulous LAI and all of its sections and groups putting on events all the time for upskilling of library staff. So we're, we're spoilt in this country. And I, I suppose as I listened back to Cahill's interview uh, last week, I reflected on a, a piece that I was asked to peer review last month, which was from outside the dominant culture, right? So it's from a developing country. And the things that it was describing in this particular library, you know, I thought, God, we, we've done that. We Is the world going to be interested in this? Well, of course they are. Right. So if we can start to introduce the perspectives of our global colleagues, then you you do benefit from it and you do start to think about problems in a different way. So I think that certainly I'm hoping my eyes are going to be opened next week with some of the, the international speakers and topics and themes that will be addressed at the IFLA. We're calling it IFLA. I know it has a its own correct name, the World Library and Information World Congress. Library. Congress, which colloquially uh, we're all calling it IFLA, I think, in, in Ireland anyway. Um, so we, before we delve in a little bit more on, on uh, the IFLA uh, World Library and Information Congress, you you mentioned there about this, the the work and the the requirements for the the LAI, our um, national professional body, um, in terms of like our our own needs for upskilling now and. You've been quite involved with the the LAI for for a number of years now, both in terms of your involvement with the Western Regional Section, and you're now on the LAI Council. Um, why, if you, you know, if you were to to try and convince someone what the the benefits are of of being actively engaged with the the LAI, how how would you do that? How do you sell it? I know you've you've actually done quite a good job of doing that already. Well, I think the first thing I would do is take the hard work out of it for myself and direct people to the just beautiful new video that the comms and marketing group of the LAI has produced. So they yeah. have Marie O'Neill is the, Marie's uh, done a very good job of. of yeah, her. Marie is the uh, the lead actress in that video. So maybe we'll get a link in the description to that video. So that video for me encapsulates all of what's important about the LAI. So the LAI is a professional body. Uh, it's an individual membership body that just one part of what it does is allows people to volunteer and get involved in your professional body. So if I had wanted to get involved back in 2000, 2003, 4, 5, 
when I was a solo librarian, the LAI would have been the perfect avenue for me to get involved. Now, social media wasn't then what it is now. So it was a bit more difficult to get involved, particularly with what, you know, was an organisation that I, I just couldn't see myself as belonging to. I think that sense of how you can connect to it is really clearly explained in, in the short video that they did. So yeah, regionally, that's a very then, vital point. I remember feeling that way when I was a solo librarian and it took you know, the likes of Marie O'Neill and then some of my colleagues who I've worked with on the ANSL committee to to reiterate to me, look, this is it's open for all. If you are a librarian or a library worker or library adjacent, it's for you. You know, the door it's is open. You. Exactly. And I think that my, my experience of you know, getting involved in library groups, going to visit libraries. There isn't a more welcoming community in the world. And I, I truly mean that you'll be welcomed no matter where you go and where you turn up to, to to visit a library. And the same is true of any of the sections. So I initially became involved with the Western Regional section. My kids were small and I thought, well, I can't be going to Dublin to meetings. Western section might suit me. It's up the West Coast. Maybe that's a little bit more accessible for me. So I became the chair of the Western section a couple of years ago, and they've done some fantastic work there in that section. Before I ever joined, they had launched um, uh, 23 things. So they had Irishified it a little bit and called it Ruddy Three. So that was a huge success. That was an upskilling initiative that, that the voluntary Western regional section of the LAI took upon itself. And they ran it twice. There was such a demand for it, they had to run it a second time. So it's yeah. been a, it's a brilliant legacy of that group. So then if you look at the, the other groups, so they're, you know, thematic groups then like the Rare Books Group, um, the Career Development Group. And then you have the Professional Standards Group who've done terrific work designing three different levels of professional award that you can um, achieve within the, uh, within the LAI. So the first step is the, I suppose, for the new entrants, the new professionals, it's the associateship. So you're, you're um, you get ALAI for your when you achieve that. There's a middle level called the SLAI, the Senior Associate, and then the Holy Grail is the Fellowship. So there are candidates uh, all around this country who could and should and will hopefully eventually achieve that FLAI. It is really an outstanding mark of your contribution and achievements as a library person in Ireland. So great credit is due there to the Professional Standards Group for establishing those and really the the LAI's relationships are, they, they go everywhere, right? So you have the, obviously with the, the IFLA connection next week, but on a, a regular basis, then the connections into the health libraries, the government libraries, the school libraries, public libraries, when you're all together in a room, good things can happen. And great discussions go on at LAI Council about, you know, the, the overarching issues that face libraries. And the example that Cahill described last week, and I know he's actively involved in the ebook SOS campaign, you know, you bring the different sectors together through the LAI and as a unifying body like that, its value is absolutely immense. So delighted yeah. to be associated with it and, and do anything I can to support it. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, you know, whether it's just bringing in uh, someone who's a solo librarian and showing them their tribe or whether it's pushing forward for change on a massive scale in relation to publishing practices, the LEI helps us all kind of have, have a stronger voice, I suppose. Um, and as you said, you know, we'll we'll be able to see that 
writ large um, from next week onwards uh, as we speak now we're only six days away from welcoming all of our international colleagues to to Ireland um, for the IFLA World Library and Information Congress and you've been as a member of the LAI Council you've been able to see the the behind the scenes on the huge amount of work that's gone into bringing the um, World Library and Information Congress to Ireland this year, which is a huge achievement and um, steering the course through all of the the upheaval and postponements just to, to get us to this point where we're, we're, we're almost there. Yeah, look, it's been absolutely immense yeah. watching the, the commitment, really, I suppose. And I, I'll shout out to Philip Cohen and Cahill McCauley for their leadership on it. To be quite honest, it's a huge, huge undertaking when you've got other work going on and you've got a busy life to be mm. so heavily contributing to to what is going to be a huge event in Dublin next week. I just admire them. I, I wasn't involved in the organising committee. Now, my good friend and uh, library school colleague, Ava, has me emceeing an event next week as part uh, of the Yes, conference. he's managed to rope me into something. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. So if you're, no. if, you're on, if you're on her hit list in any way, watch out because... Um, <laughs> all hands on deck next week. So look, next Wednesday, I think there's a big exhibition from the tech companies, the Library Expo Tech Lab. So hopefully I'll see some of you there. So I'll be introducing companies and speakers and uh, probably a little bit irritated that I can't get around and play with the tech that they bring to show us. But maybe I'll get a chance once things quieten down and people head off out to Dunleary to the Culture Night, which is on Wednesday as well. So look, I... I I've seen, I've only been able to see it. Obviously, I don't live in Dublin. I live down in Limerick. I've been able to follow what's happening um, on Twitter. I saw the first, the first posters yesterday. I was going to get a, a train. Yeah, on the on the bus stops. As I, I was think. rushing, rushing yeah. up the street, I, I well, saw the first posters, which really made me feel like, yeah, it's, it's real. It's almost it's here. Real. They're coming. Know, for, for any international listeners that you've got, the two most two of the most important sporting events in the Irish calendar are the All Ireland hurling and football finals, and the, the the event takes place in a stadium in Dublin around this time of year. There's one on Sunday, in fact. If uh, I don't think any of the IFLA delegates would be able to get a ticket at this stage, but might be a bit late, yeah. unless they want to go with your scalper. Yeah, the commentators will will tell you that you can't beat being there. So you can watch that All Ireland final on TV anywhere in the world. But, you know, you just can't beat being there. And I think being in the midst of 15 or 1600 librarians next week is just going to be a thrill unmatched, uh, probably in my professional life anyway, in our home country. So look, kudos to the organisers and to everybody involved. And it'll just be a fantastic event. Yeah. And it's a unique opportunity for us here in Ireland, because, as you said, you know, it, it, nothing beats being there. Um, and as Cahill mentioned, this is the first time that IFLA has come to you know, a smaller city um, like Dublin, it's often in, in big in international cities. Um, and it's just not, it's often not possible for you to go to to big conferences like like IFLA unless you're in a very senior position. So it's a great opportunity for those of us who might not otherwise have ever been to IFLA or ever had a chance to go to the IFLA conference. It's a great chance for us to, to be there and be part of it, but also for us, I think there's a great pride now among um, Irish librarians about welcoming our international colleagues 
welcome them, welcoming them in, welcoming them into our libraries, showcasing our country and the library profession here. So, you know, I, do you have any advice for any of our um, IFLA colleagues who are coming to visit? Do you have any anywhere that if you were coming in as a, a library tourist, where would you recommend? Oh gosh. Um, well, I think that the, the organising committee, the national committee has put great tips and tricks on the, the website yeah. for, you know, what to pack and what to watch out for and so on. Look, I think if you can, sometimes in these very big conferences, I remember attending um, an ALA conference in Washington a number of years ago. I was completely overwhelmed by it for the size of it. And if, if somebody had said to me, take take time to, you know, just soak it all in. Just be part of the atmosphere, be part of what's going on, you know, not to be tediously taking notes all the time and to just allow yourself to immerse yourself in what's going on. Just kind of smell the flowers a little bit when you're in Dublin next week. I think um, getting up early may be a good start. Seeing Dublin uh, early in the morning before the hustle and bustle starts. Dublin early in the morning is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. like I would, um, as somebody who lives in Dublin and lives near Phoenix Park, I would strongly recommend getting in for a walk or a run or even borrowing, like there's a, a bike rental at, at the entrance to Phoenix Park, getting in early in the morning and taking in the park. It's It's like you're in the middle of the country once you get into it. That's it. And I think that um, the events that are taking place uh, in the evening time are visiting some of the most. I mean, you couldn't bring a visitor to every single tourist hotspot in Dublin, but I think the the various places that are on the agenda now will give people a sample of Dublin and uh, and those that are able to come a couple of days early or stay on for a couple of days afterwards. I think head out of the city. Maybe if you go an hour or two out of the city, you'll get to the mountains or you'll get down to the coast. Uh, but I think maybe the tips for what to do in Dublin, I might leave to the Dublin residents. I last lived in Dublin when I was in library school, so I might leave that to the yourself and those that are up to date with what to do in Dublin. Well, mine is get rent a bike and cycle through Phoenix Park. Sounds good. Mm -hmm. Sounds amazing. Thank you so much for, for sharing your, your library journey with me and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks very much, Laura. for talking to me you can get updates from michelle she's on twitter at michelle under underscore breen and she's bound to be tweeting out some gems all the way through ifla this week i will be catching up with some ifla delegates during the congress to record interviews for upcoming episodes and i'll also be doing some roving recording so please come and say hello if you happen to spot me roaming around with my portable recorder I really look forward to the Festival of Librarians to come this week. To all who are going, welcome and enjoy. Librarians Aloud is produced and presented by Laura Rooney-Ferris. Music and sound design is by Michael Ferris. <laughs>